The art of violoncello playing in the 18th century. 1. Italy. Italy has the claim of priority in violoncello as well as violin playing. It was the birthplace of the violin and of the cello, and from thence emanated the artistic executive development of both instruments. The first famous Italian cellist of whom we have any notice is Domenico Gabrielli, with the surname of Monghino del Violoncello, born about 1640 at Bologna, died in 1690. This artist found a sphere of work in the church of San Petronio in his native town. Then he entered the service of Cardinal Pamphili in Rome. Gabrielli was also a composer of some repute. Feti mentions eight of his operas, which were written partly for Bologna and partly for Venice. His other works consist of a cantata a voce sola in a collection of motets entitled Vexillum Patis for alto solo and instrumental accompaniments, as well as balletti, gighe, correnti, e sarabande, a due voi violine, e violoncello con basso continuo. Opus Uno, Opus One. These three works, of which the last is a reprint, appeared successively in 1691, 1695, and 1703. Consequently, after Gabrielli's death, he appears to have composed nothing specially for the cello. More remarkable as a cellist must have been Attilio Ariosti, the Dominican monk born at Bologna in 1660. Gerber at least says of him that he was one of the most excellent violoncellists of his time, but he was also a distinguished performer on the viola d'amore. He occupied himself chiefly, however, with opera compositions, for which the Pope granted him a dispensation from the rule of his order, as without it being a Dominican, he was forbidden to meddle with anything connected with the theater. In 1698, Ariosti was sent for to Berlin as Kapellmeister to the Elector of Brandenburg. Thence he went to London in 1716, where, in the proximity of Handel, he could make no way and therefore at last returned to his fatherland. He chose Bologna as his place of residence. Like Gabrielli, he appears to have produced no independent violoncello compositions. His fellow countryman, Giovanni Battista Bononcini, Famous as an able cellist, also devoted his talent by preference to the operatic stage. He was the eldest son of the choir master, Giovanni Maria Bononcini, at the church Santa Giovanni in Monte at Modena, and was born in 1672, or according to Feti, in 1667 or 1668. At first instructed in music by his father and then perfected by Colonna at Bologna, he betook himself at twenty-two or twenty-three years of age to Vienna, where he found a post as cellist in the Imperial Capella. Here he turned to opera, which at that time was a favorite means of entertainment for the seeing and listening public, and promised more reputation and gain than all other kinds of composition. Feti mentions twenty operas by Bononcini, but he doubtless wrote more. Even in his eightieth year he was occupied for the theater in Venice, Besides, he wrote an oratorio, Joshua, several orchestral pieces, masses, chamber duets, trattenimenti da camera, etc., some of which were composed before his entrance into Vienna, Hofkapelle. He also wrote Sinfonia for violin and violoncello, as well as cello solos. Of the latter, there appeared at J. Simpson's, London, a sonata for two violoncellos and a collection of sonatas by Pasqualini, San Martino, Caporale, Spuorni, and Porta. As Caporale was born in 1750 and Porta in 1758, the publication of this collection must have taken place late in the second half of the 18th century. The Bononcini sonata contained in it does not give a very favorable impression of this composer's talent. The development is dry and in places very formal even here and there somewhat incorrect. 
two, the two figured parts that are given accompanying bases, partly simple and partly contrapuntal. The interest which attaches to this composition, consisting of an allegro with introductory andante, a movement marked grazioso, and a minuet, after which the grazioso is to be repeated, rests cheaply on the light which it throws upon in technical condition of cello playing at the beginning of the 18th century, for doubtless the composition belongs to that period. In reference to this, it is to be remarked, the principal part is confined chiefly to the middle tones. The lower ones are only occasionally touched, and the compass of the higher notes reaches to the one-lined A. The thumb position does not come into use. Figure is little developed, and only modest attempts are made at plain double stoppings and chords. The notation is in tenor and bass clefs. It is reported that during Bononcini's residence in Paris, between 1735 and 1748, he composed a motet with cello obbligato, accompaniment, for the royal band there, which last he himself played at the performance of his work in the presence of the king. Alessandro Scarlatti, the founder of the Neapolitan Opera School, had given an example of this use of the violoncello about 25 years before in one of his cantatas. Gimignani, Corelli's pupil, related that this cello part was performed during Scarlatti's presence in Rome, and with his assistance on the clavier by the famous violoncellist Franciscello. His playing was so beautiful that Scarlatti described it as heavenly. This event must have occurred in the year 1713, when Scarlatti was in Rome the last time. Consequently, Franciscello's birth must be placed with all probability in the year 1692. He would have been 21 years of age when he played with a Neapolitan master. Gerber says that Franciscello went from Rome to Naples in 1725. That he was actually there in the year mentioned is affirmed by Quantz, who himself heard him play. Through Francescello's extraordinary performances of the violoncello was soon so generally accepted in Italy that the gamba had, in 1730, almost entirely disappeared from the Italian orchestras. In the year 1730, Francescello was summoned to Vienna as imperial chamber musician, a proof that his name had already penetrated beyond his country. Franz Benda, afterwards celebrated as a violinist and founder of the Berlin's violin school, heard him in the Austrian capital. Franciscello's manner of playing so impressed him that he took him from that time as his model. Franciscello remained, it appears, ten years in Vienna. If a notice in the musical almanac for Germany of the year 1782 is to be credited, he had already been a member of the Imperial Court and Chamber Music Society in 1766, which is by no means beyond the bounds of possibility, though not very probable. We hold then to the assumption that he was born in 1692, so that in 1766 he would already be 74 years old. It is not known where Franciscello closed his life. Tradition always only says that at an advanced age he resided in Genoa, to which the supposition was attached that the city had been his birthplace. It is stated that the elder Duport, the cello virtuoso, who was born in 1741, went from Paris to visit him there. During his long period of work at Vienna, Franciscello doubtless instructed pupils in cello playing, who they were is, however, as little known as the question if or what he composed for his instrument. On both points, we are no better off than concerning his somewhat older compatriot, Cervetto, called Jacopo Bassevi, who was born in 1682. Until his 46th year, he remained in his fatherland. Then, like so many other Italian musicians of his time, he was seized with a desire to travel and betook himself to London. There he trafficked, at first in instruments which he had brought with him from Italy. This, however, was so little remunerative that he very soon gave it up, and joined the orchestra of Drury Lane Theatre. 
According to Bernie's judgment, Cervetto was, for his time, a very clever violoncellist, who knew how to manipulate the fingerboard with much dexterity. But his tone must have been rough and harsh. Of his eccentricity, the following anecdote is an illustration. Once, when the famous Garrick was representing a drunkard and sank down senseless upon a seat, Cervetto broke upon the sudden stillness with an unseemly loud and long-drawn yawn. Garrick immediately got up, severely censuring such behavior, upon which Cervetto, pacifying him, answered, "'I beg your pardon. I always yawn when I am very pleased.' A few years later Cervetto became director of Drury Lane Theatre, and thus he laid the foundation of his fortune. Cervetto must have had a strong constitution, for he lived to the unusual age of one hundred and one years. His death took place on January 14, 1783. He left a fortune of twenty thousand pounds sterling, which he bequeathed to his son James, who was also a cellist but soon after inheriting from his father he retired into private life. He also reached a respectable age, for as he came into the world in London in 1747, he died February 5, 1837. He was ninety years old. In 1783 he was performing at the court concerts of the Queen, as well as taking part in the musical reunions in the house of Lord Abington as one of the best reputed cellists in London. Of cello compositions, he published number 1. Twelve solos for a violoncello, with a thorough bass for the harpsichord. This work, dedicated to the elector Palatine of Bavaria and Jülich Eleva Berg, appeared at the author's own expense, without date. Number 2. Six solos for a violoncello, with a thorough bass for the harpsichord. Opera Terza, London. Number three, twelve sonatinas for a violoncello and a bass. Opus four, London. Feti adds, besides, six solos pour la flûte and six trios pour du violon et violoncelle, which must have been in existence not long before the end of the last century we shall have occasion to refer again farther on to Cervetto's violoncello compositions. Taking up again the chronological thread after Cervetto the Elder, the cellist Battistin, whose real name was Johannes Baptist Struck, must be mentioned. He was of German origin as was born in Florence in the second half of the 17th century. From thence he went to Paris at the beginning of the 18th century. He there entered the band of the Duke of Orléans and the Opera Orchestra, in which he, conjointly with the brothers Abbé, properly Philippe Pierre and Pierre de Saint-Sévin, played the cello parts. He must have performed well since Louis the Fourteenth, in order to retain him in the French capital, gave him a liberal allowance, and, in addition, a sum of five hundred francs for certain theatrical compositions to be supplied by him. Besides this, he wrote a long list of ballets and operas, especially for court festivities. There appeared in print by him, during the years 1706 and 1714 in Paris, four books of cantatas and a collection of airs. He does not appear to have composed for the violoncello. He died on December 9, 1755, at the scene of his work. Among the masters of the Neapolitan school, Leonardo Leo, at that time the famous opera composer, distinguished himself as a violoncellist, who was born in 1694, at St. Vito degli Schiavi, in the province of Lecco, and died at Naples in 1746. He also composed six cello concertos with quartet accompaniments, which belonged to the years 1737 and 1738. The manuscripts of these are in the library of the Royal Conservatoire at Naples. It is supposed that these are the oldest of existing cello concertos. Another Italian cellist of that time was Domenico della Bella, of whom nothing further is known that, 
1704 he published in Venice twelve sonatas a due violini e violoncello. The information is equally meager regarding the cellist Parasisi, of whom Gerber says he was an extraordinary artist on his instrument and was with the Italian opera orchestra at Breslau in 1727. Concerning the Italian violoncellists Iacchini, Amadio, Vandini, Abaco, Dall'Olio, and Lanzetti, born in the second half of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, we know very little. Iacchini, whose Christian name was Giuseppe, noted by Gerber as one of the first cellists of his time, was appointed to the church of St. Petronio in Bologna at the beginning of the 18th century. That he had distinguished himself as an artist in, is proved by his nomination as a member of the Bologna Philharmonic Society, a distinction which is only conferred on men of great musical reputation. Of his compositions there is a work entitled Concerti per Camera a tre e quattro strumenti con violoncello obbligato, opus quattro. Bologna, 1701, to be mentioned. Pippo Amadio, who flourished about the year 1720, was, according to Gerber's account, a violoncellist whose art surpassed all that up to this time had been produced on his instrument. Antonio Vandini, first cellist at the Church of St. Antonio Padua, seems to have been no less remarkable. The Italians called his manner of playing and his expression parlare. He understood how to make his instrument speak. He was on terms of such close friendship with Tartini, who, as is known, was engaged at the same church at Padua as solo violinist, that he accompanied him in 1723 to Prague and remained with him for three years in the service of Count Kinski. Vandini was still living in Padua in 1770. The year of his death is unknown. Abaco, born at Verona, according to information contained in the second year of the Leipzig musical paper, page 345, was a prominent violoncellist who lived in the first half of the 18th century. Gerber possessed a cello solo of his composition, of which he says that it appeared to have been written in the year 1748. Giuseppe Dall'Olio, the younger brother of the vi famous violin player Domenico Dall'Olio, was born about 1700 at Padua and went to St. Petersburg in 1735. There he remained in the Russian imperial service 29 years, after which he returned to his native land. On his journey thither he stopped at Warsaw, on which occasion King August of Poland nominated him his agent for the Venetian Republic. Salvatore Lanzetti, born at the beginning of the 18th century in Naples, was pupil of the conservatorio there, Santa Maria di Loreto, and was during the greater part of his life in the service of the King of Sardinia. He died in Turin in 1780. In the year 1736, two volumes of violoncello sonatas appeared by him, and later also a book of instruction, the title of which Fetti gives as Principe du Droite pour le violoncelle dans tous les tons. It is somewhat difficult, differently named by Gerber. Principe ou l'applicature de violoncelle par tous les tons. Lanzetti must have carried out with great skill the staccato touch, both up and down the instrument. We are somewhat better informed regarding the violoncellist Caporale. Neither the place of his home, nor the year of his birth, nor that of his death are indeed known to us but of his life and work in England, we possess some information. In 1735, he came to London and worked under Handel, who wrote for him a cello solo in the third act of his opera, Deidamia, composed in 1739. His musical education could not have been very thorough, but he must have had certain qualifications which induced Handel to connect himself with him, Simpson's collection, see page 49, published in London, contains a cello sonata by Caparale, which does not speak much for his talent in composition. 
It consists of adagio, allegro, and a theme with three variations after the manner of studies. As a player, Caporale was remarkable for his tone, but as regards finish, he could not rival either the elder Cervato or Pasqualini. This last-named artist, by whom a sonata scarcely rising above the level of Caporale, was contained in the volume already mentioned as appearing at Simpson's, was performing in London in 1745, as a concertist of great repute. Further information regarding him does not exist. Greater consideration must be yielded to Carlo Ferrari, brother of the violinist Domenico Ferrari, so often referred to in the previous century. On account of an injured foot he was called the Lame. Born in Piacenza about 1730, he betook himself to Paris in 1758 and appeared with great success in the Concert Spirituel. In 1765 he accepted an engagement offered to him by the Count of Parma. He remained in this position until his death, which took place in 1789. It is reported of Ferrari that he was the first Italian cellist who made use of the thumb position. If this be true, France must have been beforehand in the difficult matter of the art of fingering, for the thumb position was already known in Paris, as we have seen, before in 1740, consequently at a time when Ferrari was only ten or twelve years old. But if it be acknowledged that violoncello playing was contemplated much earlier in Italy than in France, and had already advanced beyond the elemental stage before it had found representatives among the French, we must be inclined to concede to the Italians the discovery of the thumb position, and indeed the predecessor of Ferrari. It is highly probable that Francescello and Battistin already availed themselves of its assistance for the use of the upper parts of the fingerboard. The trick must have been brought into France by the last-named artist who, as we know, settled in Paris at the beginning of the 18th century. The proof that the thumb position was known in Paris before 1740 is established by the violin-cello method of Michel Corette in the year 1741, and which, as far as one can see, was the first work of instruction for the instrument in question. Considering the scarcity at that time of cello compositions, this instruction book is the more important, as from it is to be termed with certainty the average standard to which violoncello playing had attained towards the middle of the previous century. The circumstances seem to justify our entering somewhat more fully into Corret's school. The title is A Theoretical and Practical Method to Learn the Cello in a Short Time in its perfection, composed by Michel Corette. Book 24 in Paris, with the author. Madame Boivin and Seigneur Leclerc in Lyon at Monsieur de Breton's, with privilege of royalty, 1741. After some introductory paragraphs regarding the use of the F and C clef in notation for violoncello music, concerning the value of notes and pauses, the formation of sharps, flats, and naturals, as well as regarding the usual marks, the various measures and syncopes, correct treats. 1. Of the manner of holding the violoncello. 2. Of the holding and action of the bow. 3. Of its use in the up and down strokes. 4. Of the tuning of the violoncello. 5 of the division of the fingerboard into diatonic as well as chromatic tones. 6. Of the fingering in the lower, first, and following positions. 7. Of the way and manner of returning from the higher positions to the first. 8. Of trills and appoggiaturas. 9. Of the various kinds of bow action. 10. Of double stops and arpeggios. 11. And also of the thumb position. He also gives instruction for those who wish to go from the gamba to the violoncello, and then in conclusion gives hints for the accompaniment of singing and for instrumental solos. It is evident that the directions of Corette have chiefly a mere historical importance 
as the technique of the violoncello, after the appearance of his method, underwent substantial changes. His explanation concerning the finger positions of that period and the thumb position, which in the higher parts of the fingerboard takes the place of a movable nut, concerning the manipulation of the bow, and the considerations to be observed in exchanging the gamba for the violoncello, have a special interest for us. With regard to the first of these four points, we remark that the finger position adopted by Corette for the diatonic scale on all the strings was in the first two positions, one, two, and four, in the third position, one, two, three, four, and in the fourth position, one, two, three. After the latter position, the fourth finger was, as a rule, no longer needed, for which Corette adduces as a reason that it is too short to be made use of in the higher positions of the fingerboard. In case, however, it should be necessary to use it, the use of the left arm would be impeded. In exceptional cases, says Corette in another part of his school, the fourth finger could be used in the fourth position without altering the thumb position for the B-flat and B on the A-string, for the E-flat and the D on the D-string, and for a-flat on the G-string, and for D-flat on the C-string. The finger positions were then, in the first half and about the middle of the last century, somewhat different in the diatonic scale of the violoncello than they were later on. It is especially to be remarked that the E and the B were touched with the second finger upon the two lower strings. Though the notes marked were far more convenient for the third finger, which very shortly took the place of the second. As to the exclusion of the fourth finger, when playing with the thumb position, no proof is needed to show the reason was that it gave an awkward manner of holding the left hand. The finger positions for the chromatic scale still more widely differed from the fingering employed later, as the following scales show. A chromatic scale starting on low C in a bass clef. Open, one on C sharp, one on D, two on D sharp, two on E, four on F, four on F sharp. Open G, one on G sharp, one on A, and so on and so forth. Until we get to the A string in tenor clef starting on the E above the A string. 2 on E, 3 on F natural, 3 on F sharp, 4 on G, 4 or 3 on G sharp, and 3 on the A, which could be played harmonic. It is very nearly happened that as early as the 17th century, when a stringed instrument was so much desired as a standard one for the violoncello, that the violin mode of fingering was adopted for the former, which according to the foregoing remarks, really was the case, with the exception of the use of the third finger. It had, however, been overlooked that the cello, on account of its much larger dimensions, demanded an entirely different method of fingering. The regulation of this important point, which offered peculiar difficulties, occupied cellists up to the beginning of our century. In some measure, the fingering which Corette teaches for descending intervals of a second from the higher to the lower tones is unavoidable. He gives the two following examples, both in tenor clef. Starting on the G of the A string, three on G, two on F, one on E, one on D, three on F, two on E, two on D, one on C, four on E, two on D, two on C, one on B. And example number two. Starting again on the G above the open A string. Three on G, two on F, two on E, one on D, three on F, two on E, two on D, one on E, uh, C, four on E, two on D, two on C, one on B. He gave the preference to the second example, 
the almost total exclusion of the fourth finger caused a very great restriction in playing with the thumb position. But when Corette wrote his work, this limitation would hardly have been felt, as the higher parts of the fingerboard were little and only in exceptional cases used by cello players and composers. Corette mentions, as the highest note, the one-lined B. Caporale and Pasqualini did not go beyond this note in their sonatas, already mentioned, excepting in one instance when Caporale uses the two-lined C. It appears that, with many cellists, in place of the thumb, the first finger was made use of in the higher positions as a support for correct remarks concerning his method. If the first finger is used instead of the thumb, the fourth finger must necessarily be made use of. It is, however, on account of its shortness, really useless in the upper positions. To beginners, Corette recommended the attempt then in vogue, but a little later combated by Leopold Mozart in his violin school, to introduce marks on the fingerboard indicating the intervals in order to learn to play clearly in tune. For gamba players who, following the spirit of the time, gave up their instrument and turned to the violoncello, which was rapidly coming into use, this means of assistance had a certain value. Accustomed as they were to the frets of the gamba fingerboard, for the finger positions of both instruments differ considerably from one another, as appears from the comparison given below by Corette. Here is an extensive illustration of fingerings on the gamba compared to the cello, utilizing scales. The figures placed under the gamba scale relate to the frets which are to be attended to by the player, while those of the cello scale are the finger positions to be used. The lower C, which the string itself forms on the cello, had on the gamba to be touched at the third fret. The succeeding D on the gamba was the open string, while on the cello it was to be touched with the first finger and so on. The four highest tones, E, F, G, A, fell in the gamba on the second, third, fifth, and seventh frets, whereas according to Corette's account, those in the cello required the use of the thumb position. It is plain that the gamba players who took up the violoncello had to adopt an entirely different system of fingering. To a certain extent, the handling of the bow presented difficulties to those who exchanged the gamba for the violoncello. The former instrument, on account of the flatness of the bridge, did not allow of an energetic use of the bow. From the violoncello, on the contrary, a powerful tone must be brought out, which had to be learnt by gamba players. Besides, they had also to accustom themselves to other strokes of the bow for the cello. What was played by the latter instrument was, with a downstroke was played by an upward one on the gamba and the reverse. The holding of the bow was again rather different from the present manner. Corette gives three ways for this. According to Corette's testimony, the most usual way in Italy consisted in placing the second, third, fourth, and fifth fingers upon the rod and the thumb beneath it, so that the bow was held not exactly at the nut, but about a hand's breadth from it, as formerly and even at the beginning of our century was done by many players. The second way of holding the bow was, the other four fingers being placed as above, to lay the thumb upon the hair. Finally, the bow was also held so that the second, third, fourth, and fifth fingers were laid upon that part of the rod to which the nut is attached, while the thumb had its place beneath the nut. Corette does not give the preference to either of these ways of holding the bow, which in the course of the second half of the last century became more and more obsolete. He was of opinion that they were all good, but left it to each one to choose the manner in which the most power could be attained. It seems, however, noteworthy that Corette laid it down as a rule that the middle of the bow should be used in playing, whereby its use was limited to a third of its length. In the preface to his method, Corette speaks of several systems amongst violoncellists, but adds, the best and most generally followed was that of Bononcini, of which also the most skillful masters in Europe made use. From this remark it follows, that in the composition of his school he took Bononcini's manner of playing, which he was able to study, soon after the latter's arrival in Paris as his guide. 
In surveying the above principles, detailed by Corette, regarding the technique of the violoncello playing, it must be admitted that, needing improvement in almost every respect about the middle of the last century, it had not progressed, with few exceptions, beyond the elementary stages. The chamber sonatas and suites of Johann Sebastian Bach for violoncello solo, the last of which were originally composed for the viola pomposa, cannot be cited as proofs to the contrary. In them Bach forestalled, and the technical capacity of his time, by a decade. Although they are composed for that part of the fingerboard on which there is no question of the thumb position, yet they contain difficulties of an extraordinary kind which Bach's contemporaries had not been able to master. And even in the second half of the last century, there could have been no cellist who would have been fully capable of playing them. Therefore, it must be considered either that these compositions, so remarkable of their kind, were not absolutely composed for the cello, or that the violoncello technique took another direction, which was called out by these suites of Bach. The violoncello, like the violin, is primarily an instrument for the voice. As such, it was chiefly used by the Italians, who, up to the second half of the last century, gave the impulse to stringed instrument players. This is to be gathered from the cello pieces by Italian composers belonging to this period. As instances, next to the sonatas already mentioned, two musical pieces of the same kind may be cited by San Martini, uh, Giovanni Battista San Martini, and Bernardo Porta. Neither of these composers were violoncellists. Their sonatas are, however, adapted to the nature of the instrument for which they were composed. As compositions, they are indeed of little importance, and as regards the technique, they do not rise above the measure of the modest demands which were then required. With regard to cello technique, the younger Cervetto, whose compositions have already been mentioned, page 52, goes really farther. In them there is a greater variety in the manner of playing, in the use of double stops, and different passages derived from the scale and the chord. Such ways of playing could naturally only at first be found out and perfected in a proper manner by those who were already experienced, practiced players on an instrument of extreme difficulty on account of its, its extensions. The cello pieces of Cervetto formed after the manner of Tartini's violin sonatas are, as to their contents, quite antiquated, and are only interesting in a purely technical point of view. Like the compositions already considered, they occupy most the parts of the tenor and bass. Only twice in the first allegro of the tenth sonata of his opus four does Cervetto venture to the twice-lined C, uh, E, and at the conclusion of the same piece to the twice-lined A. In both cases, he has to use the treble clef, which does not appear elsewhere. Besides Cervetto the Younger, amongst Italians who cultivated cello playing must be mentioned Gasparini, Moria, Ioannini di Violoncello, Zappa, Ciri, Aliprandi, Graziani, Piarelli, Spotorni the first and the second, Barni, Bertoglia, the first and second, Loli, Sandonati, and Chevioni. We give below the meager information which, which exists regarding them. Quirino Gasparini, a distinguished cellist, was in 1749 Kapellmeister at the court of Turin. He remained there until 1770 as a composer. He was chiefly occupied with church music. No cello pieces are known by him of Moria. The fact only is known that in 1755 he was heard at the Concert Spirituel in Paris. Ioannini di Violoncello, from the year 1759, Kapellmeister at St. Petersburg, uh, had a great reputation in his own country as a player. Zappa, called Francesco, according to Gerber, was making a concert tour in 1781 and enchanted his hearers in dance by his soft and delightful execution. 
Giambattista Chieri, born in the first half of the 18th century at Forli, lived and worked for a long time in England on the title page of his first work, published at Verona in 1763. He called himself a professore di violoncello. Of his compositions, there are appeared in print 17 different works in London, Paris, and Florence. As a clever violoncellist, Bernardo Aliprandi, son of the opera composer Aliprandi, born in Tuscany, was distinguished. His father was composer and court band conductor in Munich during the first half of the previous century, but he himself became a member of the orchestra there, where he still was in 1786. His cello pieces, of which several were published, are as obsolete as those of Chiri. Gerber, in his dictionary, says of Graziani that after the death of the gamba player Luis Christian Hesse, he was summoned to Potsdam to take his place as tutor to the crown prince of Prussia. When the French violoncellist Dupour the Elder came to Berlin in 1773, Graziani lost his post at court. He died at Potsdam in 1787. The six violoncello solos, Opus One, printed in Berlin about the year 1780, as well as the six cello pieces brought out in Paris, Opus Two, mentioned by Gerber in his old musical dictionary under the name of Graziani, must have appeared in the latter years of the author's life. In the second half of the last century, there was a violoncello virtuoso named Pierelli who, about 1784, had printed in Paris six violoncello solos. This is all that is known about him. Of the brothers Spotorni, Gerber only says that, in 1770 in Italy, their native land, they were esteemed as violoncellists. A very skillful player was Camillo Barni, born on January 18, 1762, at Como. He received his first instructions in cello playing at the age of 14 years from his grandfather, David Ronchetti. Later on, Giuseppe Gaggi, canon of the cathedral at Como, taught him for a few months. At the age of twenty, Barni joined the Upper Orchestra of Milan, of which he became first violoncellist in 1791. In the year 1802, he went to reside permanently in Paris, where he appeared as solo player and then for several years was an active member of, in the orchestra of the Italian opera. Between 1804 and 1809, he published several duets for his own instrument and the violin. He also wrote a cello concerto. Concerning the brothers Bertoglia, Gerber only says that both were employed in Venice about 1800, as virtuosi on the violoncello and were reputed in Italy the first masters of their instrument. Filippo Loli, son of the violin virtuoso Antonio Loli, was born at Stuttgart in 1773 practiced the cello from early youth, and at 18 years of age made a concert tour, which led him to Berlin. Here he was heard by the king, who was so pleased with his performance that he recognized it by an honorarium of 100 louis d'or. Loli then went to Copenhagen, and in the year 1804 played at concerts in Vienna. There is no more information about him extant. Of San Donati, Gerber says that he lived in Verona in 1800 and was one of the most renowned violoncellists of those times. Gerber announces the same of the Mantuan Chevioni, who worked about the same time apparently in Verona. While all these men were endeavoring to make an advance in violoncello playing, and especially in violoncello compositions, the Italian nation possessed in Boccherini an artist who surpassed in every direction his countrymen. Luigi Boccherini Luigi Boccherini, the son of a contrabasso player, was born on February 19, 1743, at Lucca. He there received his first musical instruction from the Archbishop's choirmaster, Vanucci. Besides the cultivation of theory, he devoted himself with peculiar zeal to cello playing, of which he was to prove a master. The very promising progress which he had 
made decided his father to send him to Rome for the further prosecution of his studies and where his talents attained their full development. When Boccherini, after the course of a few years, returned to his native town, he found there Tartini's pupil, Filippo Manfredini, his countryman, who was an excellent violinist. He soon formed an intimate friendship with him, which led to an arrangement for making a concert tour. The two artists went to Spain, afterwards to Piedmont, to Lombardy, and the south of France. The favorable reception which the friends experienced encouraged them about 1768 to proceed to Paris. In the French capital they had a splendid success. The compositions of Boccherini gained such great applause that the Parisian music publishers La Chevardier and Venier declared themselves ready to undertake the expense of printing all the works already heard. Notwithstanding, he received very little for his compositions, and later on he was not more fortunate. At the persuasion of the Spanish ambassador in Paris, the artists proceeded, at the end of 1768, or the beginning of the next year, to Madrid. Here Boccherini roused the special interest of the Infanta Don Luis, who named him as his compositore e virtuoso di camera. When this prince died on August 7, 1785, Boccherini became court capellmeister of King Charles III of Spain, a post which he also filled under the succeeding king, Charles IV. He received a still further recognition from the king, Frederick William II of Prussia, who designated him his chamber composer when he, in the year 1787, dedicated a work to this art-loving monarch who conferred on him a considerable honorarium. From that time, Boccherini dedicated to him everything that he composed. We may conclude that he was adequately remunerated, for when the king died in November 1797 and the allowance ceased, Boccherini fell into difficulties. His compositions being badly paid by the publishers. At the same time, he seems to have lost his place as Capellmeister to the king of Spain, However it was, he spent the last years of his life with his family in great need, from which death only released him on May 28, 1805. Having in view the great quantity of his compositions, Boccherini must be distinguished as a, an extremely prolific composer. There are in existence 400 instrumental works by him. They consist of 20 symphonies, 125 string quintets, Amongst them are 113 for two cellos, of which the first cello is more or less an obligato, 91 string quartets, and numberless trios, septets, quintets with flute or oboe, violin sonatas, as well as several vocal compositions for the church, etc. Very little has proved capable of surviving, and this little only awakens a limited interest. The cause of it seems to be in a certain simplicity which underlies all Boccherini's music. With great cleverness of form, added to an apt and easy flow, it is certainly not wanting in originality, which has even a humorous tendency, but the manner of expression is characterized by a certain formality which gives to Boccherini's music an antiquated air. His ideas are wanting in power of thought and depth of feeling, they rarely rise above the pleasing and agreeable. At the beginning of the century, the chamber compositions of Boccherini had an extraordinarily pop popularity, especially amongst the dilettanti. From that time, however, they have been little played, at least in Germany. The interest in them was maintained much longer in France, where they were unusually prized, according to Fetis' biographie Universelle des Musiciens. There also they have been, for some time, laid on one side. Boccherini composed six concerti specially for the violin cello. There are also extant several cello sonatas with bass by him. It is surprising that there is no mention made of them in the list of Boccherini compositions by Feti. Six of these sonatas have been republished on the one hand by Friedrich Grutzmacher and on the other by Alfred Piatti with piano accompaniment. 
The violoncello concerti of Boccherini, on the contrary, have fallen almost entirely into oblivion. They are only so far interesting in that, by them, is shown to what degree of technique cello playing was developed by this master. We must here observe that he was one of the first of the Italian school who gave decided expression to the solo and virtuoso side of the instrument. He not only made possible for cello music the higher and highest parts of the thumb position, with the exception of the complicated harmonics first discovered and made available after his time, but he also considerably extended beyond his predecessors the plane of double stops as well as the execution of passages. If in form they were somewhat superficially elaborate and worked out after the manner of studies, yet instructive material for practice of an extent and variety hitherto unknown was provided for cellists. For Italy it was a sensible loss that Boccherini spent the greater part of his life abroad. His native land was in consequence deprived of the advantage which the personal influence and example of his strikingly artistic proficiency might have gained. If he had remained there, he would, doubtless, have been to his countrymen as regards cello playing what Corelli and Tartini were to Italian violin playing. But under the prevailing conditions, Italy lacked a recognized musician who might have been the means of further successfully developing that branch of art. Moreover, the decided preference of the Italians for opera from the end of the last century, which prevailed to the cost of all other musical efforts, checked for a time further impulse to, or demand for, the cultivation of stringed instrument playing, which until then had been so successfully pursued on the Apennine Peninsula. What, however, Italy's sons attained in the art of violin cello playing was not lost, but was further perfected by German and French masters, concerning which the following sections will give the necessary explanation. Mm -hmm. 